Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Wizard and the Bruiser. I am your high-flying X-Ray Vision Heaven, badass wizard, Holden McNeely. And I'm your war bond salesman. Yes, right, kids. Save up now to help slap a Jap and kick a kraut and kiss a Jew. What? It's me. Kiss your country Jew. needs you to kiss Jews. Whoa. Okay. Beat up the Japanese and hug a Hebrew. I, that is. They're, be- they're be- a beautiful people. They're a people. grand old flag. You're a high flying flag. <laughs> You're a Jewish, 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 Jewish. Um, it's very Jewish today here in Superman's Happy Good Time Corner. Uh, we are here to talk about the history of Superman. And when Jake and I met up today to record this episode, the first thing Jake said was, we made a mistake. <laughs> and I said, yes, I emphatically agree. Jake, I am in, first of all, let's, let's take note. I'm in sunny, sunny L.A. in the beautiful oh. last podcast, West Coast Studio. I've been living here. It is far nicer than, than any of our apartments. It is a beautiful one-bedroom, or not a one-bedroom, studio apartment. There's a pool. There's a workout center. Dinner. It's just gorgeous outside. I, I want to figure out how I could stay here. And uh, I mean, you know, but but I have to come back. I've got a woman who needs me. You're there. Your woman, maybe she needs me too. I don't know. We'll talk about it. But look, I, I you stay away from my woman, McNeely. I'm a swinging LA boy now. All right. I don't care what happens behind closed doors. Okay. I've been to crazy parties you wouldn't believe. I rolled roller skates through a fucking water water slide. It's so crazy out here. I'll have you know, Holden, it is a lovely day out in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, along the East River. People are outside and playing and showing off their tattoos, and everyone is so rich and skinny, and I feel like I emerged from a sewer coming over to the studio. <laughs> you know what it is? Well, then then you feel exactly what it's like for me to be in L.A. right now. Everyone is beautiful, uh, and, and you, know what, you know what else, Jake? Everyone I- is high, and I think that that is why, actually, the... the the L.A. vibe is the way it is. Everyone is just stoned to the gills out here. No one gives a fuck. You know what I'm saying? They could be freaking out about their, you know, uh, uh, quasi-failing Hollywood career, <laughs> but they can't because they're just so high, Jake. That's the mm. that's that's all they have to do. But we're not here to talk about how high everybody, including myself, has been getting for the past few days. We are no, here to talk about what? No, it's here's the segue. <laughs> Can you please give me a segue? I can. I have no idea how <laughs> Superman at all relates to me talking about my trip to L.A. Jake, because I need this here segue. we are, two just fucking losers in glasses, <laughs> unable to be part of the pretty people. I'm wearing a black T-shirt, by the way. I'm not fitting in whatsoever. <laughs> I have but, the only my my most LA shirt is a bright yellow shirt that says Baltimore. There's more than murder here, and that is the <laughs> most LA shirt I have, and it is not very LA. No, you got to spend three hundred dollars on one of those Supreme T-shirts. <laughs> no, but despite our uh, obvious shortcomings in looks and coordination <laughs> and social uh, value. Uh, our creativity burns like a shining star, and so too did Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster use their awkward, horrifying, uh, ugly faces to give birth <laughs> to a creative endeavor. All and that, right, that was Superman. You want to get into it? Let's get into it. Jerry Siegel. That, that th- this is this is uh, one half of the team that really brought us Superman. He was born in 1914 in Cleveland, Ohio, to Jewish immigrant parents. That might be important. Who fled anti-Semitism in Lithuania? I tried to look up the history of anti-Semitism in Lithuania, and um, it's just the history of Lithuania. Yeah, I just, I was just like, oh shit's just bad there. I'm just gonna whistle my way out of this situation on Wikipedia. So I just moved right along. It just sounds like they got out at a good time. His parents were originally named Mikhail Iankel uh, Segalovich and Sora Mieta Kakels Kakels. And uh, they each changed their names to Michael and Sarah Siegel after the move, becoming the sort of the sort of American dream, the American uh, kind of way. Changing their name, Americanizing it. In 1932, Michael uh, Siegel it was uh, he's a tailor at a suit store, um, and while he's kind of doing his thing, he was assaulted in his store by a shoplifter and suffered a fatal heart attack. Again, yet again, another instrumental part, I think, in the creation, the of Superman. Um, also, I should note Jerry Siegel is the youngest of six brothers and sisters. Big family. 
Um, and then tragically, a decade later, the mother dies of a heart attack in 1941. So he's definitely dealt with early tragedy in his life. Um, I mean, not to get too brutal this early into our episode, but like, I don't think you can get closer to the core of what Superman is if not the dad who will never die. Yes, yes. The invincible dad. Yes, it's exactly. Like, the invincible Jewish immigrant dad as well, coming coming, coming into America and really like kind of ascending to greatness, you know? It's it's complicated. The Superman thing is, is like, it's very fun to do that Cavalier and Clay thing where it's like- I love Cavalier I, and Clay, by the way. The Amazing a, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a great book that's sort of a fictionalized retelling of characters that are sort of- Pretty much just based off of Siegel and Schuster, 100%, and it's it's a really good book um, that kind of puts you in the mode of that time period. But uh, the more research I did, the more the kind of, um, like, X equals Y Jewish experience, like, didn't quite pan out. If anything, Superman is, like, the ideal, it's like, it's the immigrant kid that, like, grew up on TV and video games and is, like, more American than even, like, an American kid could be. Yes, absolutely. Now, Jake, can you just kind of briefly define the American Jewish experience for our listeners? Um, <laughs> everyone makes a big deal about Christmas, but you don't, and you feel weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, he's he's got some early death. Um, I think because of that uh, uh, early death in his life, he, he becomes, you know, a super nerd fan of movies, comic strips, sci-fi pulp magazines, all of these escapisms, you know, mm -hmm. things to just dive into other worlds and, and you know, w using your imagination, really kind of get away from everything um, going on in real life because it sounds like it's pretty brutal. In 1929, he self-publishes possibly the first sci-fi fanzine ever called Cosmic Stories using a manual typewriter to create them. He's like, this is, he's the nerdiest, he's like the ultimate classic nerdiest nerd. You know what I mean? Like he, right. like creating your own fanzine. I mean, th just think about how hard that would have been to self-publish a fanzine using a typewriter. That means he's just like, is, does that not mean he's by hand typing the same page over and over again? I mean, no, you type it and then you put it in like the doggero type or the memeograph oh, or something. Oh, okay, gotcha. I don't know my old-timey typewriters. I'll have to give Tom Hanks a call to get uh, some info on that. Siegel ends up attending Glenville High School in Cleveland. It's like uh, Glenville is like kind of a primarily Jewish neighborhood that cropped up in Cleveland, and that is where he befriends a man named Joe Schuster. He said of this meeting, when Joe and I first met, it was like the right chemicals coming together. Joe Schuster, born in Toronto, also to a Jewish family. His father, Julius, was an immigrant from Rotterdam who also had a tailor shop, and his mother, Ida, came from the Ukraine. Um, they, uh, uh, they ended up, uh, he worked as a newspaper boy for the Toronto Daily Star, which is, of course, the um, influence for the uh, later uh, newspaper joint in the Superman comic book. Um, his family was poor, and Joe had to fight to obtain paper. Now, Joe is an illustrator. Joe is trying to become an illustrator. Uh, he, he tells a great story about this poverty and still being able to kind of create his art. He says, I would go from store to store in Toronto and pick up whatever they threw out. One day, I was lucky enough to find a bunch of wallpaper rolls that were unused and left over from some job. The backs were blank, naturally. So it was a gold mine for me, and I went home with every roll I could carry. I kept using that wallpaper for a long time so i mean this is like literally drawing shit on used wallpaper like uh uh roll, rolls like the backs of them i mean that's kind of where we're at that is some that is some uh that's some real ingenuity uh, and some real yearning to, to be an artist. When he was around nine years old, his family moved to Cleveland, and that's where he attended Glenville High School um, and, and has this meeting. Um, he taught himself how to draw by tracing over art in strips and magazines that he had. He was heavily influenced by different artists such as Milt Kniff, who did Terry and the Pirates, and Steve Canyon. The Swashbuckler is definitely a he heavy influence, by the way, in general. We'll talk about more of that as we continue to talk about Superman. The Swashbuckler of the time, which, you know, I guess we actually, I was about to say, we don't really have that nowadays, but we totally do with Pirates of the Caribbean. It's been like such an American... I mean, we, ha we have superheroes. That's what makes this story so insane saying is that these are uh, two nerds, uh, you know, dealing with uh, being unpopular, dealing with being poor, dealing with death in the family, uh, dealing with just like having even if it was, you know, having the weird immigrant parents with the funny accents and the odd customs and like 
completely surrendering themselves to the escapist fiction of the era, which is black and white movies, uh, serials, radio plays, yes, uh, science fiction literature. You know, these were nerds before a nerd identity even existed. Exactly. This was just... I mean, because that's like like the cape comes from the swashbuckler. There's a lot of them would wear like capes, the kind of the 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 like Zorro three musketeers, and, three musketeers kind of and stuff. Like that's where that came from. Other influences came from artists such as Hal Foster, who did Prince Valiant, Roy Crane, who did a was an adventure comic strip pioneer. One of his characters was Buzz Sawyer. So it's all these kind of very like fun, but also mixed with that is a heavy interest in fitness culture as a boy. And I want to do I want to do more research on these guys like I felt like I couldn't just hang out too hard on these but he was a big fan of strong men uh from this time strong men is like an amazing thing from back in the day they, they, these guys who would wear these like crazy costumes these strong men such as Sigmund Breitbart and Joseph Greenstein by the way both Jewish um and um they they would bend iron bars around their arms and they you know travel around with, like with the circus and stuff like that bit through iron chains or tore them apart hold back two uh, whipped horses they would bend horseshoes they pull a wagon load with their teeth hold up cars with up to 10 passengers and lift a baby elephant all of of these things were seen in those golden age Superman comic books, especially the lifting of the car, right? I mean, that's like oh, kind of yeah. the iconic image for Superman, especially from back in that time and heavily inspired by these strongmen that would travel around. I like lo- loved my very brief reading about these gentlemen and the pictures are phenomenal. <laughs> I wish we had like we kind of, we have versions of the modern day strongmen. I mean, oh, yeah. For sure, uh, but but they didn't. Half your half Thor Bjornsson, the uh, mountain from Game of Thrones, yes. is like a celebrity just for being this large man. What chucks refrigerators in the air? But you know the whipped horses, the car, the you know you don't see as much of that. You kind of do. There's like the Iron Man contests and stuff like that, and like I think it's more like we worship more people like. MMA people are like CrossFit people, but like you know I don't know. I just love this the 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 kind of cartoonish ridiculousness of the old-timey strongmen. If you want to see cartoonish men do absurd things with their grotesquely thick bodies, you the the market is being served right now. You can the world is yours. <laughs> um so anyways, uh they end up getting together and working together, uh illustrator and writer wanting to create something. They're pitching things all over the place. They start mailing pitches out to different comic book publications and one of which is the National Allied Public Publications, which is uh, would later become DC Comics. They, uh, they, they National Allied Publications was created by uh, what's his name? It's like Lieutenant something Jack something or whatever. Um, uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson founded National Comics Publications in 1934, and what he did with it was something new, something a little bit new. Uh, in fact, the name, the word new is used in the title. He put out a comic book anthology called New Fun, and it was the first American comic book series to feature solely original material rather than reprints of newspaper comic strips. Uh, National Allied Publications was founded in the autumn of 1934, and this is their very first publication. Their pitches um, are described as such by Joe Schuster. One was drawn on brown wrapping paper and the other was drawn on the back of wallpaper from Toronto. This is what they're mailing to fucking DC Comics, you know? Yeah, yeah. And DC approved them just like that. It's incredible. But DC also said, we like your ideas, we like your scripts, and we like your drawings, but please copy over the stories <laughs> in pen and ink on good paper. So I got my mother, this is, uh, yeah, and this is Schuster, by the way, I got my mother and father to lend me the money to go out and buy some decent paper. The first First drawing paper I ever had in order to submit these stories properly to DC Comics. So they debuted with two characters, Henry Duvall, the musketeer swashbuckler, and supernatural crime fighter, Dr. Occult. They sure did. Dr. Occult. I thought you were going to scream with horror when I said that name, Jake. But you just nah. stared, you just sat there and stared at me. <laughs> <laughs> As if you had completely zoned out while I was talking. No, I, I just, just I was it. trying to figure out where you were in the timeline because um, that they both appear in New Fun on November six. Uh, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, New Fun number six in October of 1935. Essentially, okay. it's this is just like right now. I'm about to go back and say in the January of 1933, Jerry Siegel writes a short story that Joe Schuster illustrates called The Reign of Superman because that's a couple years before. But we're gonna just mm-hmm. dip back and talk about that, how Superman became Superman. 
Okay, because uh, that was published in their uh, in Cosmic Stories, their little zine. Um, but uh, more fun was actually a revolutionary title on its own because it was actually the start of the all original content yes. uh, comic book. Yes. Uh, previous to that, the comic book was basically just a bunch of rerun uh, serial comics from newspapers, uh, and newspapers would usually have a Sunday insert of full page color comics. But the idea of a specific comic book filled with original stories that you go out and buy uh, was basically, that's why it was new fun. The idea was these were things you hadn't seen before. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, just talk about striking while the iron's hot. They got in just in time to take advantage of this situation. And, of course, National Allied Publications wasn't, you know, what it would later become uh, being coming Detective Comics and then DC Comics later after that. Um, you know, I mean, they really got in at the perfect time to debut these characters and play with this stuff. So it's 1933 now, January. This is before their first, uh, you know, run and new fun with those other characters. Jerry Siegel's write, writes this story, The Reign of Superman. It's, uh, it's, it's a very different thing. It almost feels more like it's like later Lex Luthor kind of. Um, I mean, did you read it? I didn't read it. I just read I, the summary of it. I actually read it, and it is like it's very. The writing style is very crude. Um, you know, you can tell this is a young, like, teenager trying to like make a hard-boiled uh, science fiction story. But it basically involves a mad professor uh, picking out a depression era like bum from the breadline and testing a rare chemical meteorite uh, solution on mm. him, and uh, it turns out it gives him. All sorts of like very Ray Bradbury esque psychic powers. Like um, he can read thoughts. He can like see the future. At one point, there's like t a page dedicated to how the bum uh, just stares out into the night sky and realizes he can look at Mars and s watch two aliens like fight each other. And it's described what I can only uh, 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 say is erotic fury, the way Siegel <laughs> wrote two aliens fighting. <laughs> Um, Wait, what is that? What do you mean? That, literally, in the middle of the story, the bomb is like has a hangover from his powers coming into being. And like as his head is spinning and he doesn't know what's happening, he looks up at the night sky and realizes he can like focus and actually see what's happening on Mars. And what's happening on Mars is a glob and a tree monster are like enraptured with and wrapped into each other's like tentacles and like trying to dominate each other. It's very weird. Jeez um, Louise. So it's like hentai, like tentacle porn. There's like a smidge of hentai. Um <laughs> Joe Schuster's How did illustrations. Anti-tentacle board into the Superman Golden Age episode because they were in. <laughs> they were tapping the vein of the nerd psyche before anyone so even had hard. a grasp of it. So um, deep, man. Like they were like, yeah, they're like the Pink Floyd of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the I'm gonna just give away the fun twist. Okay. Which is um the bum finally getting a hold of his powers. Uh, immediately starts just making racetrack bets and then stock market calls and uh, grows so like uh, so so in so uh, uh, in love with the idea of being this power broker that he just starts like fucking with the uh, I don't even know if it yeah it's not even the United Nations yet because it's 1933 so he starts fucking with like the League of Nations and tries to instigate a global war a plucky reporter tries to confront him and uh, before uh, the Superman, as Dunn, I think his name was, uh. is about to kill him, uh, he realizes that he can feel the effects of the formula pay, like um, uh, wearing off, and he starts laughing, and the Superman is like, uh, oh, if I'd known this was temporary, I would have just started off trying to make the world a better place. I thought I had time. I just wanted to have fun first. What a waste. Oh, no, oh, no. And that's the twist. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so... That uh, that fan scene didn't sell super super well, uh, and they end up Siegel ends up developing a new character named Superman, but this time he wants to make him a hero that can be more marketable. Uh, the first prototype has no powers and more casual clothing, kind of just straight up a strong man, like I was describing before. Uh, it's more similar to a creation they would later put out for DC called Slam Bradley, which, by the way, Slam Bradley definitely my pornography name. If I ever they all ever... had pornography names. That's what made <laughs> Superman so amazing. Is that like if you look, you can you can uh, you can find copies of all these original like comics. Um, anthologies that they were putting out in the era and it's just like a cowboy named like 
Tex, tough guy, and like a gangster, like or like a cop being like uh, Gumshoe O'Sullivan. Like it's it's just they're cookie cutter. Yeah, it's just like yeah, and, cop and cowboy. And Slam Bradley is a hard bitten private eye who loves working for dames. You know, it's like that whole like sort of detective noir thing. So, anyways, uh, they end up. Um, Kind of having to put Superman away for a while. Siegel decides. I mean, I've I, I've read a, I've read this from a couple different angles. I feel like so. You give me your interpretation. What you think actually went down? Siegel feels that, from what I gleaned, that the reason why him and Schuster can't get a comic book over is because they're both unknowns. Um, other things seem to point towards Siegel also feeling like he didn't think Schuster's work was necessarily up to snuff. I don't know if that's actually the case at all. I, I kind of tend to believe the the first uh, reasoning for why he does this, but ends up, he ends up soliciting other illustrators. And Schuster fucking flips out about this, and alleged, apparently, because of because of this heel turn that Siegel's made on him, he, he burns the first ever Superman comic book that they created as a prototype for pitches, and in Ends up uh, only leaving the cover of that book in existence. I don't know if that even exists somewhere, but that would have been worth some money. So that's unfortunate. Uh, he ends up working with a man named Russell Keaton, who worked on Buck Rogers. And actually, I've come to find, Jake, that I think Buck Rogers was like quite an inspiration for Superman's origin story. Because Buck Rogers is essentially... A man who's like cryogenically frozen and he wakes up in a different, uh, the far future and it's like a sci-fi world and he ends up being this kind of sci-fi kind of hero character, right? Uh, well, when, it seems like when this guy comes in, Russell Keaton, he kind of draws a lot from that. They form an idea that upon Earth, um, uh, being on the verge of exploding, the last surviving man sends his child back in time to the year 1935. So instead of sending him into the future, he gets sent back in time, where he is adopted by Sam and Mary Kent, and the boy has superhuman strength and bulletproof skin, and the parents teach him how to use his powers for good. Now, obviously, the time travel thing doesn't stick, but we get a few things from this namely Sam and Mary Kent a child being kind of sent to a different out of place and time for for themselves after Siegel's work with Keaton is rejected Keaton abandons the project and Siegel and Schuster end up reconciling and continuing to develop the idea I would love to see be a fly on the wall during their renegotiation process or their like apologies like sorry man I know I fucked you up man I know I walked away but I'm here I mean you know, what I'm I, I've seen if you watch interview footage of Jerry Siegel or listen to it because it's a lot of it is audio. Uh, it's actually very much like this. <laughs> oh, hello, uh, Joe. I'm sorry. Please come back to me. It's, I, it's fine. It's, uh, it was a strong guy. What if what if we had a cape? It would be funny if we had a cape. <laughs> so the nerdiest, this idea, nerdiest nerd, nerd, nerd of nerdlinger, nerds. It's. You could, like, get as offensively nerdy as you can, and you'd almost hit Jerry Siegel. <laughs> hey, Joe, I have an idea for a great character. He's a, what nerd, if... he's a nerd in a trauma movie. Yes. <laughs> I have a great idea that'll make us upwards of $150. <laughs> Think of all that money we're going to get. <laughs> So um, he, uh, so when they reconcile and they end up fixing, uh, patching things up, they now make the character an alien from the planet Krypton, and the costume is added. They they uh, they create the, the you know with the cape, with the they start the early versions of that S on the chest. They also create the alter ego Clark Kent, and the names are actually uh, derived from the actors Clark Gable and Kent Taylor. Um, and Clark Kent's outward appearance is very much influenced by uh, fil silent film star Harold Lloyd. Yes, very much so. Um, Best known for his bespectacled glasses character, a resourceful, success-seeking go-getter, a resourceful, success-seeking go-getter who was perfectly in tune with the 1920s era United States. Um, as well as Siegel himself. Uh, Clark Kent also, his uh, inability to sort of talk to women without making a pee-pee or sort of <laughs> screaming, crying, is all based on Siegel's inability to talk to women. I thought, what would, what would children like to hear? You know, the story is, obviously, you spend all day soaked in urine, uh, screaming in terror from anything with boobs. And, you know, the idea that, like, if you could just strip off all of your pee-pee-soaked clothes and you had, like, nice dry wool clothes underneath would be fantastic. And then maybe you could, like, uh, uh, throw a car at a bully. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I kind of want your uh, Giger to sit down with your uh, Seagull and have, uh, like, lunch. 
if possible someday. <laughs> that would be like amazing. The most amazing just counter human. Uh, it's like just just literally it would just be like, uh, what do you think? nerds really want to hear about and like see just like uh what if there was a moon princess and she needed a real strong guy to help her i don't know uh, fix her castle that'd be great because then she'd be like oh you're so strong thank you and gear would be like a thousand nipples protrudes <laughs> from the center of the earth and we must harness our collective energy to suckle <laughs> There were many influences on the character of Superman. Many point to John Carter of Mars, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, it's a man from Earth that ends up on Mars. The low gravity makes him stronger and allows him to leap large distances, which actually Superman wasn't flying initially. He was just able to leap very far. Uh, the name of the town Metropolis was taken from the 1927 sci-fi film directed by Fritz Lang that we probably will end up doing an episode on at some point. Um, Superman was modeled after Douglas Fairbanks Sr., the American actor best known for his swashbuckling roles like Zorro and Robin Hood, and, and by modeled after, not in look necessarily, but more in like tood, like having that just brash confidence, that sort of suave kind of stylistically. If you think about how Superman always stands like with his arms on his hips, like boldly like that, that is what that attitude is. Yes. The idea that like... Um, this isn't a hard-boiled detective. This isn't, like, a grizzled cowboy. This is a bombastic, confident figure, and that's, like... So, basically, the silhouette of, of that actor. And um, uh, his actual appearance is based on actor and swimmer Johnny Weissmuller, who played Tarzan, with a little bit of Dick Tracy thrown into the mix. And Superman was actually a term used in the 20s and 30s to describe great men, mostly athletes and politicians. Lois Lane is modeled after a woman named Joan Carter, who was actually Joe Schuster's girlfriend and later Siegel's wife. So... Um, actually, he ended up, you know, um, creating a character that Superman's Clark Kent's always pining after and unable to talk to and totally ends up like over, almost overcoming it in his own life by almost like by creating this model in his in his imaginary world. I mean, when you think about Lois Lane and how she does have like a very specific attitude and kind of assertiveness and even her look like the kind of upturned hairdo and like thin eyes like. It, it's because it is really it's really based on this one specific woman. Yes. Like, they could have made her, like, you know, any sort of blonde, like, damsel in distress, but the lowest, like, the, the I honestly feel like it's not because it's, it's not like I had much experience writing female characters. I just kind of, like, followed this pretty girl around and wrote down the stuff she said. <laughs> Um, turns out, turns out that worked. And and his costume to go back to the wrestlers, boxers, strongmen. Those were all the, the, the those were the influence mostly for his costume. If you look at old kind of nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties pictures of the classic strongman, you can see the influence there. Um, and uh, originally, Superman wore sandals. That was switched to later because a lot of times the strongmen would wear those sandals. And um, swashbucklers here is the war the capes of the time. We already talked about that. So, anyways, the ideas are really starting to form and come together. The influences are there. The the the, the stage is being set. And after several rejections for their Superman comic, editor Vin Sullivan at National Allied chooses Superman as the cover feature for Action Comics number one in June of 1938. Uh, when what's amazing is after seeing the first published issue. Another, the publisher, Harry Donenfeld, dismissed the feature strip as ridiculous and ordered it never to be on the cover of the series again because it's just ridiculous. Look at that guy. He's holding up a car. What is that? Ah, I need some cheese. I'm hungry. I just say the things that come into my head as I think them. I'm going to take a walk. My wife's terrible. What's your name? He just sounds like a real asshole, Jake. Just so many, so many. Meanwhile, if you had a copy of that comic in mint condition, you could earn oh about four million dollars. About right now. four million fucking bucks. So go. I mean, suck on that, Nancy. It's insane. Like we don't. There's no such thing as like an original copy of the Bible. There's no such. You can't get, uh, you know, a mint copy of Homer's Odyssey first draft. But right. like, we have it's we have it there. It's there. These two. You know, they published this in like on crappy paper. Yeah. The birth of the superhero. It's insane. It's um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Now, uh, uh, honestly, my favorite thing about the cover 
of super of action comics number one is the gangster at the front of the issue who's holding his like hands up against his face it's like oh man what the fuck he's holding a fucking car man it's, it's, i'm freaking out man it's, it's what the fuck <laughs> In the first issue, literally all that happened, well, actually a lot happens. Literally the first thing that Superman does, they do like a quick rundown of his origin story. Um, they do a thing where um, uh, they kind of, they explain like, well, an ant is super strong. It's just little and a grasshopper can leap super high, but it's just little. But a Superman can like leap an eighth of a mile. And like, you know, they kind of just lay out that like, you know, human like you know all the human feats that are capable of just like exploded into full size it's it's yeah. um but the first thing superman does is break into the governor's mansion and uh yell at the governor to stay the execution <laughs> of a nun yeah uh it, it's crazy the the early superman stuff is really crazy we'll get into the kind of the crackdown on the character that happens shortly afterwards it's kind of political they're kind they're kind of doing whatever they want there, there's all sorts of weird stuff um the the way clark Kent and lois lane's relationship is treated is super bizarre um, lois hates him yeah hates him and like smacks him in the first issue right i believe and like well, runs out what happens is is um uh lois lane uh is at a dance with clark kent and clark kent is like clark kent pulls uh, a uh, priest from little mermaid on her <laughs> just pops a fucking bone bone on her that's your reference for boners <laughs> <laughs> just I, Holden at eight years old, like, witnessed that one frame of animation and was like, there's something going on there. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck, Lex. I just got a priest from Little Mermaid. <laughs> so And bad. we're in public. <laughs> oh. um, so, yeah, but anyway, she's, but a, yeah, they're at a, a dance A crook together. named Butch uh, kind of, like, uh, bullies Clark aside and, like, in especially, like, now, it's, like, very gross uh, to read this, like, just this this palooka just like kind of grabbing Lois and just like demanding affection from her. Um, but Lois like slaps him and like uh, drives him away. Butch is so upset um, that he runs Lois's cab off the road and kidnaps her and Superman because he knew that like, you know, a fiery dame like that is going to get into trouble was following the whole time. And that's the car that gets smashed up. Mm-hmm. Um, in It's actually kind of amazing in Action Comics 1000. Uh, which is like the uh, you know the big 80th anniversary issue that dropped this year. Uh, it's uh, they they actually do a story where uh, they kind of it takes place like after Action Comics number one, and Superman just kind of talks to Butch and is like, "Hey man, um, you know that's that was fucked up what you did back there. Try and live a better life." And Butch is like, "I I grew up in an orphanage, man. I tr- it's it's hard out there." <laughs> it's it gave a level of depth because right now, like in this golden age, it's literally uh, Clark Kent uh, first page. The editor at the Daily Star, the Daily Planet, uh, goes like, "Ah, oh, there's a thing happening, and it's fucked up." And Clark Kent goes like, "I bet Superman would make that unfucked up." <laughs> Superman shows up, and it's just like, "Hey, this is bad, and you're dumb, and I'm strong, so fuck you." And what also, the, I love the one, and this is getting kind of more into the political stuff that they later got away from. But like when he destroys a project in order to, so that they would have to rebuild it and make it nicer to like help the poor, there was just crazy oh, stuff like that. Uh, arms dealers, yeah. senators, uh, slum lords, war profiteers. Yeah, um, they, they they were they were just doing whatever they wanted because no one thought it was going to be what it became. And then once it started to get popular, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! We need to like make this pure good, pure simple. Um, uh, yeah, the public the the publisher Donenfeld dismisses the feature so much that it doesn't get another cover on Action Comics until issue seven. And then by issue nineteen, he's so popular, he's a permanent cover fixture on Action Comics. Um, um, and he has his own solo series. He gets his own solo series in uh, the summer of 1939. Not only does he get his own solo series, but he also gets the Superman radio series. Faster than a speeding bullet, more popular than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's Superman, you know. Oh, more powerful, not popular. I was about to make. I mean, a, trains are very popular. They're very. I was about to make a comment about like what idiot wrote this. Oh, I read it like a moron. <laughs> so I'm the stupid, dumb idiot. The 
Adventures of Superman was syndicated on New York City's WOR from 1940 to 1951. It aired three times a week in the afternoon. That was the after-school show. Like, we used to have Tiny Toons. What'd you have after school, Jake? Tiny Toons, Animaniacs. I remember that. Loving that. Um, Darkwing Duck. So this was kind of their version of that. The kids would come home from school. Instead of Ninja Turtles, you're getting that Superman radio show. The uh, popularity of it was greatly helped by the voice of Bud Collier, who was the voice for Clark Kent and Superman. People loved him. And you got actually things that were introduced into the comic from the radio show, such as uh, Daily Planet editor Perry White, copy boy Jimmy Olsen, and police inspector Bill Henderson all came from the radio show and ended up making their way into the uh, comic book. And also they took the clan down. Jay? Uh, it was literally, I, I wish I had the information on me, um, but there was a muckraker reporter that was trying to, uh, um, it was trying to like kind of crack, you know, kind of reveal yes. how the clan operated. His name and, was like, uh, Stetson Kennedy, just okay. for record. Mm-hmm. And uh, wouldn't you know it, every time he brought that information to several southern police departments, mm. they they didn't act on that information. Mm. For whatever reason, a southern police department in the 1940s wouldn't want to stop the Ku Klux Klan. Well, the world may never know. The, um, <laughs> and, and he's learning things about the Klan, like their code words and their rituals, things that actually um, can really make them look kind of goofy and really kind of expose them. Because once you kind of expose all that stuff, you look, you're, you're less of a like interesting kind cool of ghost cool club. ghost club and you're more of like a silly bunch of goofballs with the silly passwords and stuff kind of like how Scientology gets uh, looked at when people start talking about you know Xenu um, Xenu yeah. and shit like that so anyways he ends up taking it to the radio show and um, and together with the producers there they create an episode of the show where Superman goes after the KKK and um, the, and, and essentially reveals all of these rituals and code words and stuff through the episode and it actually helped have a negative impact on their recruiting and membership and actually actually made a difference i think the other most interesting thing that i love i loved reading about about the early radio show was that it, it is actually credited with the origin of kryptonite see kryptonite and for a, re- a hilarious reason so mm-hmm. kryptonite um, initially was in an unpublished 1940 story by siegel called the k-metal from krypton not really called kryptonite but just kind of its earliest in the, like earliest form it's a mineral from the planet that drains Superman of his strength while giving humans superhero powers. But that didn't really actually get published or anything. And it's in first actually introduced to the public in the Adventures of Superman radio series in an episode called The Meteor from Krypton. And the reason why was actually because Clayton Collier or Bud Collier, um, as he was nicknamed, uh, he actually just needed to go on vacation, and <laughs> they they uh, it was a live show that they recorded, and they didn't do reruns, so like they needed a reason for Superman to just like be incapacitated for multiple episodes so that he could like go to Hawaii or whatever it was. So <laughs> a stand-in groaned as Superman for multiple episodes, just oh, oh, <laughs> is he still trapped in the kryptonite? Oh, mean like meanwhile, fucking. Bud Collier's probably fucking slamming blow with a bunch of <laughs> prostitutes in, in Brazil or something. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, that's that's how it really got introduced, and then the comic book adopted it. It's first introduced in the comics with Superman number 61 in November 1949, um, and uh, e- editor Dorothy Woolfolk is uh, credited with uh, credited with the introduction of it in the comic because essentially, and for good reason, I think, because it's probably why I kind of couldn't get into Superman very much as a kid, personally, she found Superman's invulnerability to be too boring, you know? Like, he's just like, no one can fuck with him. And it's just kind of like, he needs an Achilles heel. And I think that that was really smart of her to do that. Um, that's kind of jumping more into the future. So, um, yeah, so the crackdown. So at first, they're doing all these crazy things. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden, Superman becomes, like, the most popular thing ever, and Detective Comics decides to crack down harder on the content in fear of the censors. They make it less violent, and they take away all the social crusading that you get in the early stories. Uh, they, um... 
uh, such as, uh, yeah, getting fired upon by the National Guard as he raised a slum so that the government could create better housing conditions for the poor. That was the Brit destroying the projects thing. Like, he's fighting the National fucking Guard, <laughs> you know? Um, so they also hired editor Whitney Ellsworth in 1940, who made it a point for Superman to not kill. He first introduces that. They also removed sexuality of any kind, and the villains got real kid-friendly. You, you get such as, like, Toy Man and stuff like that. Um, and they also avoided subjects like civil rights in the Vietnam War all through this time. Uh, when Mort Weisinger, I mean, that's later on, but when Mort Weisinger becomes the editor in 1941, he stays editor until 1970. And the main thing with him was, in terms of avoiding civil rights in the Vietnam War, he was like super kind of right wing, and he felt like his opinions would actually just upset the readers. So he just <laughs> avoided it all by saying, like, Superman's not political. Blah, 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 blah. And he also cracked down really heavily on the lore and really expanding all of that and making sure that they abided by stricter rules. We'll get to, to the that. Silver Age in a second, but right now we want to focus on the Golden Age. Yes, 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 totally. Um, another thing that uh, boosted Superman's popularity was um, the uh, Fleischer Brothers animations. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the uh, the classic, like, um, this was the studio that uh, most famously worked on the Popeye shorts. Mm. But uh, honestly, if you rewatch these now, they're public domain. You can find them all over the place online. Um, which is funny. This is, which is funny also because Popeye is actually also uh, an I didn't list him, but also kind of an influence on Superman. You know? Oh yeah. The uh, these were some of the most lavishly animated. Uh, uh, creations of the time. They used a lot of novel effects to kind of create like lasers and lava and all these like fearsome robots and, and uh, gorillas and all these cool things. There's an episode where a giant tyrannosaur uh, is frozen in Metropolis and it melts and like goes loose through the city and it predates Godzilla by like decades and it's still like an incredible uh, uh, thing it's it's very influential the entire thing um, oh not the entire thing but at least the early shorts were hand animated on black paper giving it this insanely moody look that uh, actually in, inspired Bruce Tim when he was making Batman the animated series mm. and it uh, again also did its influence where uh, they because of just the issue of having Superman only leap from place to place, uh, they eventually got the go-ahead to just show him flying. Nice. Uh, because especially in Golden Age Superman, they really do take pains to show him, like, running places. <laughs> just, like, literally just hip, 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 to the next place. <laughs> which was, like, such a it's, – it's it was just such an inefficiency because you were already saving – that's the that's the other thing that made Superman great. This That's what made this series so addictive was – in any other story, you had to, like, explain how he got there and, like, explain, like, uh, you know. Right. You, you, but in Superman, it's literally like, Kent, there's a thing that's happening. And Clark Kent just jumps out of his suit and it's like, all right, I'm just going to show up there. Right. And, like, you can do that because it's fucking Superman. Totally, totally. So, also, uh, what is a Superman? What is a hero without a classic villain to take him down? Lex Luthor first appears in Action Comics number 23 in April 1940 as Luthor. And he had a full head of hair. And I love that. The reason why he's bald now is because a goofball made a goofball mistake. Um, yeah, actually, in one of those early stories, uh, Luthor has, a, has like, a, I guess, a henchman of some kind who is a bald, like, who looks more like Lex Luthor than early Lex Luthor does. <laughs> yes. To the point where I was reading and I was like, wait, that's not Lex Luthor? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> so, yeah, this ghost artist, Leo Nowak. Uh, see, see, Schuster had ghost artists because there was so much workload at this point. That's why it's yeah. also, Siegel's attributed with the early Superman stories, but it's also kind of known that really a lot of people were pumping these stories out because there was just so much story to pump out. I mean, Superman was the very first comic book character to get multiple titles with Action mm -hmm. Comics and Superman, uh, its own 
Stone series and also the radio series. We're talking about a lot of stories, a lot of yarns being spun at this point. And the newspaper strip was read by like 20 million people oh my a God. day. That's crazy. So Schuster ends up needing to hire ghost artists. And one such artist, Leo Nowak, he apparently confused him with a different character. Some say it's the henchman that Jake just referred to. Others say he confused him for the character Ultra Humanite. And um, he did it once. Uh, and... That was one thing, but then he just randomly ends up with the with the next Lex Luthor comic uh, uh, sometime later, and fucks it up again and makes him bald again. So by that point, they couldn't just make it like a one time fuck up; like they had to make it a permanent choice. And I'm glad they did. I think his bald head is very iconic. I love that bald ass fucking head, and I wish I could lick it, Jake. Um, the uh, <laughs> I actually I went and tried to find like a like what people refer to as like the best. Um, the best Golden Age Superman stories. And uh, uh, one that kept coming up was The Challenge of Luthor from uh, Superman number four. And this actually got me. I legit, it legit got me. It looked like this very goofy story where like Lex Luthor was trying to uh, steal this earthquake machine from an army scientist. And it ended up doing, going through this dumb thing where uh, Lex Luthor was like, all right, Superman, I'll tell you what. I challenge you to a series of duels and we'll see who the better man truly is. And it's dumb. Like, <laughs> it's like, I built a super cool airplane. Let's see who can go around the world the fastest. And Superman literally just like tip, 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 hip, ho, hip, ho, runs, runs across the earth and beats him. And then Lex Luthor's like, all right, well, let's see how you handle this hand grenade. And it's literally just Lex Luthor throwing a hand grenade at Superman and Superman being like, that eh, is fine. Um, <laughs> The challenges go on and on, and it's just very goofy, and my eyes are rolling, and I'm like, oh, this is dumb. At which point, Superman's like, enough games. Like, I've clearly bested you. Off to jail. And Lex Luthor's like, haha, you idiot. I didn't actually, like, I knew you would beat me in a physical, in like all these physical tests. I was just distracting you so my henchman could steal the device. Oh. And Superman's like, what? And even, I'm in my 30s and I was like oh shit Lex Luthor you're, you're a fucking sly fox <laughs> and that's exactly what his character is all about what I love about Lex Luthor I think the most is he has no powers which I think really is perfect for it to be like the ultimate villain against Superman like he just uses his super smarts his ingenuity he's like the smartest man in the world all that kind of good stuff um he was uh, in 1944. He was the first character in a comic book to use an atomic bomb, uh, and the United <laughs> States Department of War actually asked that this storyline be de delayed from publication, um, which was until 1946 to protect the secrecy of the Manhattan Project. Like that's how deep this shit goes. Um, the War wow. Department also later asked for dailies of the Superman comic strip to be pulled in April 1945, which depicted uh, Lex Luthor bom bombarding Superman with the radiation from a cyclotron. Because they felt like it was maybe giving away too much information to the Russians, I guess. Makes sense. So anyways, but he's, you know, he's 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 just the super genius leader of industry. He's like he's kind of Mr. Capitalism, is he not, Jake? Like he kind of represents that sort of side of America. Um, For some, I mean, the 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 ways that like, you know, especially because uh, Siegel and Schuster were into science fiction. The idea of like imagining science going too far or using its discoveries uh, for evil was like a big theme. Uh, and you had to create increasingly ludicrous devices and and um, scenarios that could threaten Superman. So Superman ended up fighting a bunch of like evil sciencey figures, even if they weren't specifically Lex Luthor. Um, the idea of him as this like, uh, Reagan era super businessman really only emerged after John Burns uh, run in the modern age Man of Steel uh, but like it fits it's fun it's yeah, good super fun uh, he's a great character, really, really, really strong. And again, I just love that he has new powers. It's really like I think I felt like that was kind of lame back in the day, but I, I appreciate it more and more in the in the, in uh, as I get older. You know, such a cool choice. Also, uh, dressing him in green and purple was a very early example of kind of the design dichotomy, showing that like superheroes were always in bold primary colors, ah. but the villains who were more compromised, who were more complicated who were more murky, were always dressed in secondary colors, which provided an amazing contrast on the page because even back, you know, because back then, color was still a new cool thing to have and yeah. play with. Uh, uh, so, you know, purple Lex Luthor versus red and blue Superman 
was always like a good like visual foil on top of that. Um, also, uh, we've got uh, the Fortress of Solitude in the Golden Age, but it's a little bit different from what it would later be in the Silver Age in the way that we would know it. Um, it first appeared in Superman number 17, where it was said to be built into a mountain on the outskirts of Metropolis. So it's not like in the Arctic. It's not, you know, it's kind of it's 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 kind of a different deal, but they kind of give him a little home base to live in, and that happens then. Um, there's so many. I mean, it's the golden age. There, there's a lot going on. I'm sure there's lots of characters uh, that we could sit and talk about uh, and expand on. The one thing I wanna I wanna say is um, in the you know World War Two. It's the we're, it's the late 30s. It gets to the 40s. World War Two becomes a thing. Yes. Uh, Siegel is enlisted in one of the. Uh, one of the I, it keeps coming up, I guess, because the U.S. government had to do something with all these n- creative nerds they were enlisting. He ends up in one of those special like playwright public relations. He uh, gets a writing job in the Army newspaper Stars and Stripes. He's fucking posted in Honolulu with a comedy <laughs> writing job in 1943. He wrote mostly comedy columns for that paper. That was his being in the Army. Have you ever noticed that the Coke? The coconuts make you poop, guys. Am I right? Hoy, <laughs> it's the terrible. cushiest job I could possibly... In Hawaii, writing comedy for a newspaper. That was his World War II experience. While he's away at war, yes. uh, Superman is still being published, and they actually st- and start using a character that Siegel had uh, pitched earlier, but was, you know, had shut down, uh, Superboy. Yes, Superboy um, happens uh, out there. Now, did Schuster protest at all the publishing of this, or was he cool with it? And then, Spie- and then Spiegel, and then um, Siegel uh, uh, would later convince him to file a lawsuit. Do we know? Uh, I mean, it's kind of weird because I feel like Schuster was around, correct? Like he could have said, "Don't publish this until we get the rights," but he. Yeah. It was just the first like sting. The idea that you know, because uh, you can find the original contract that they signed in in 1938, where it's like, you know, we the undersigned artist and author have performed work for the strip entitled Superman in. Uh, consideration of $130 agreed to be paid by you. We hereby sell and transfer such work and strip, all goodwill attached thereto, an exclusive right to the use of the characters and story. Uh, so, like, that contract is, you know, this this legendary bad deal where they signed away the rights for $130, which I think back in the day was like, it'd be like two grand now, which is fine for a freelance writing, drawing assignment but after you watch them launch this empire and you're still working for a comic book artist salary it's it's gotta hurt so the idea that like not only did they take superman but they took superboy which like i would argue is pretty much the same character if you want to go technically (laughs) but (laughs) the i you know this was their first like true realization that the the higher ups had no intention of ever giving them a piece of the pie. Right, and, and so when Siegel's discharged from the army in 1948, he and Schuster sue Detective Comics. They settle out of court uh, for ninety four thousand dollars, which would be ninety hundred and sixty thousand dollars today with inflation and everything. And then um, Detective Comics immediately fired the duo. <laughs> um, so that's a thing. Uh, there would later be lawsuits. We can kind of get into that, I guess, as we get to the time. But that pretty much, I think, wraps up at least the gold age if we want to start on the silver age i don't even know if we'll even get through the silver age by the end of this because there's so much going on with superman this is gonna be probably a this might even be a three-part uh series we'll see uh but it's superman it kind of it kind of calls for it um there's it's literally it's older than old it's 80 straight years i thought we were gonna get through like the movies in this episode boy was i wrong i didn't even like get to that in my research because there's just so much going on here so the silver age defined by the introduction of the flash in 1956 runs from 56 to 1970 um that mort weisinger mr kind of clean cut uh, the kind of the reason for the big blue boy scout uh uh you know saying he it, retires at the very end of the silver age actually specifically in 1970 really is there through the whole time 
And the lore that I was talking about that he kind of got more into, that sort of starts to come out. Um, different um, plannings of logic, of powers, origin, locales, and relationships being introduced. You've got uh, Bizarro Superman being introduced, the e evil mirror image of Superman. You've got Supergirl. They introduce the concept of the Phantom Zone, the, which is like the prison dimension in the Superman world. Jimmy Olsen gets introduced. Crypto, this, uh, which is pretty much the super dog, gets introduced, along with other types of kryptonite you've got red kryptonite anti-kryptonite x kryptonite blue kryptonite white kryptonite there's a bunch of different ones those are just a few uh all of these things are being introduced and uh and and just the an adhering to an unwavering moral code being instilled in him by his adoptive parents that really gets pushed pushed home and is what gives him the nickname big blue boy scout by kind of scoffers you know i think people who maybe aren't as into superman uh refer to him as such but the silver age is a huge hit i mean he is again the most highest selling comic book uh hero all through the 60s and we like to make fun of silver age superman uh you know if you've been around the internet long enough you've definitely fallen down a super dickery rabbit hole where they just showcase like all these bizarre covers of like superman's girlfriend lois lane where like superman's like i am stranding you in outer space and cutting off your oxygen because you don't love me and then like Lois Lane being like oh no Superman is killing me because I because I won't love him <laughs> like uh, you know Beppo the super ape there's a super horse at one point uh <laughs> Bugs, ants, gorillas, hypnotism. It's, it's, uh, it's like it both gets more serious and more silly at yeah. the same time somehow than the Golden Age. Uh, there's rumors that at some point uh, Weisinger would just approve weird covers and tell the artists and writers just make something up around this one fucked up compelling image. Uh and we make fun of it, but it honestly sold super well. People loved Superboy. They loved uh, <laughs> Lori Limare, the mermaid. Uh, imaginary stories that take place on Krypton. They were going in all sorts of bonkers directions. Uh, Superman's powers were basically limitless. In one panel, he could be like pulling multiple planets through outer space over his shoulder. Um, uh, stuff like uh, the super breath, which... You know, his freeze breath. Uh, this gets me all the time. Superman, it is it is established, it is, it is commonly known that Superman can freeze things with his breath. Um, that is based on a childlike under misunderstanding that, like, well, if he can blow on stuff really hard because he has super lungs, and, like, when you blow on soup, that cools down soup. Ha. So, obviously, he can blow on stuff and make it freeze. Like, it's so dumb. <laughs> but, like, they just keep adding powers and adding lore. The Bottle City of Candor, uh, Brainiac, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, and all these these side issues. So like, uh, you know, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, uh, Superman's best pal, Jimmy Olsen. They're just pumping out all of these bonkers stories. And on, and honest to God, people are loving them. He's also teaming up with a new best friend, Batman. Uh, <laughs> he gets the ally Supergirl. He founds the Justice League of America. Um, you've got uh, the Fortress. Superboy goes into the future and joins the Legion of Superheroes. Mm -hmm. And that's like a whole giant popular thing also did the kents die in the golden age superman or is that is that more of a silver age thing um i think it's it's important i think in the golden age that the kents die is why he ends up in metropolis they mention it but i think they kind of because the characters feature more prominently in the superboy story they expand on that story yeah. more and, and uh also you've got a new fortress of solitude debuting in 1958 and it was also located in the arctic uh sim serving uh similar purposes um but uh yeah it contains a bunch of more crazy shit in it like an alien zoo a giant steel diary in which superman wrote his memoirs it could be opened by a massive key it's got like a giant keyhole by the way like on the door which is ridiculous they keep, they keep that that's that's that giant dumb triangle key still is around it's got a chess playing robot uh specialized exercise equipment a laboratory where superman worked on various projects such as developing defenses to kryptonite a room-sized computer communications equipment and rooms dedicated to all of his friends including one for clark kent who uh to full visitors uh, so um anyways yeah it's 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 like popping off now they're introducing all of these things it's wildly popular um and they end up kind of retroactively defining the difference between 
between the Golden Age, the Silver Age, with the concept of the of Earth One and Earth Two. The oh Golden Age li- uh, uh, exists on Earth Two. This Superman lives on Earth One, and it all culminates with the end of the Golden Age, defined by the Crisis of Infinite Earths. Which no, is, um, Crisis of Infinite Earths was the like. That was almost like the death of the Bronze Age. That was death of the Bronze Age. You're right. My bad. Because the death of the Silver Age is in 1970. But still, uh, they at least um, uh, kind of retroactively sort of form a reason why we're kind of get two different Supermans here. You know, a Golden yeah. Age one and a Silver Age one. And they're starting to realize that, oh, now that comic books have been around for a minute, we're starting to get eras of them. And they're starting to evolve in different ways. But we're working with the one character because that character has remained popular throughout this entire time. There's also That's one of my big regrets uh, doing research for this episode is that I was reading so many Superman comics and trying to just juggle all these names and personalities and social movements because... It's 80 years of shit. Yes. And I didn't actually get a hold of like a Silver Age story right. where Earth 1 and Earth 2 are actively like mentioned and interacting with each well, other. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to do multiple parts. We're, we're going to give ourselves more time to uh, to exist in this story. I would also like to do that. We may end up covering some more Silver Age stuff next week once we get to it, um, uh, as well as, you know, Superman on into the modern age. I can't wait because my personal relationship with Superman, which we haven't even talked about today, because really we should save it for a later episode because my personal relationship with it really came around the time of doomsday and the death of superman that's what oh, that's yeah. like my strongest memories and that was a whole crazy situation that i cannot wait to discuss because it was such a big event in comic books it was so huge like yeah literally nothing bigger my brother hat still has the like in the case um that last Black issue bag with the, yeah with the armband oh my god with the, with the flat with the with the superman cape like on the stick you know, all yeah. shredded up or whatever, the whole the death issue. Um, but anyways, we'll get into that stuff later. Um, I guess the only other thing I would note is uh, more lawsuits continue to happen. Uh, Siegel is actually rehired to write for... Uh, for Detective Comics in 1957, but then he's again in 1969, he attempts to regain the rights to Superman using the Copyright Act of 1909. He does not win this case, even after an appeal, and because of the case, even though they rehired him, they fire him yet again after that case is lost. Um, his family will later try to regain the rights. We can talk about that when we get to that point in the uh, in the timeline, but yeah, Jake, do you- We'll get to the point where Joe Schuster is blind and outside of a Broadway theater begging for tickets to the Superman musical. Holy shit, dude. Uh, yeah. I can't wait to continue to research this story. It's so wild. It, it It's such a symbol for America. It is what the third most recognized symbol or whatever uh, uh, the Superman. Lo- it's it's ridiculous. So it's like it's yeah, it's just the eternal. American flag, Mickey Mouse and Superman. Um, I, I, I before we go, I'd like to just kind of like get into the psychology a little bit. Uh, like, what does Superman like embody to you? What does that like make you think about? What is it? What does it mean to like when you see Superman? You know, I feel like okay, Jake. This was kind of a hard one for me in terms of a personal connection because obviously I grew up. I grew up reading Punisher, Ghost Rider, mm. uh, Spawn. I loved these antiheroes, these f- deeply flawed characters that you know uh, kind of fought with the true grit and and were kind of dirty, scummy people kind of in a lot of ways. Like, those were the heroes I gravitated toward. Superman always represented the opposite of that for me and therefore was kind of more on the boring side to me. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't a big, really a big fan of... uh, of Superman kind of all throughout my growing up, but I understand more so now what he represents is so powerful and so important to the history of this country that I feel like I kind of missed out in a lot of ways and didn't really get it. And I'm starting to get it more as I do this research and I've continued to like enjoy more modern versions of Superman than I ever did. But to me always represented that pretty boy that bullied me or something like, you know what I mean? Like not bullied me, but maybe not the bully, but he represented that pretty boy that I could never be. You know what I mean? Ah. And therefore I gravitated to these ugly fucking monsters because that's how I felt and still feel. And if you want to come at me, listeners, come at me because I'll take you down and I'll, you, I'll, I'll, I'll do it by being an asshole and not some pretty <laughs> nice sweet boy. Okay? Jake, how about yourself? I, to this day, I never had my... It's 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 almost like someone who's like yeah, I'm really into the Beatles like like fuck yeah, you yeah yeah exactly I mean? right that's ex- that's such a better 
uh, uh, example. But I never had my pushback against Superman. I always loved the character because, like, I hated myself up until maybe no. uh, five minutes ago. No way. Um, <laughs> and that initial, like, primal urge, these two fucking schlubby, awkward kids that just, like, dreamt of this, like, perfect, morally sure, per- like, physically capable, like, enforcer of decency is such, like, a primal fantasy for the weak. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, like, the idea of... Um, you know, it can be co-opted very quickly. Like, there's a reason why the Ubermensch can be used for good and evil. Right. But the idea that, like, the, the world is fucked up, everything's unfair, um, evil thrives, like, no one can see the good in you, no one can see the good in humanity, but, like, this bright blue figure streaking across the sky, completely confident, completely strong, like just swooping in and like affirming like no this is wrong and this can be fixed was so powerful and so addictive that like basically everything that came after it is just like twists on the on that formula yeah you know everyone from spider-man even to wolverine it's still just like the 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 uncon the desires of the reader kind of given providence to like actually go out there and you know, through selectively delivered right crosses, fix a broken world is still so amazing. And the older I get, the more it's just like, it's not, you know, the fantasy of flying and being strong is fun. When you're a kid, I had the Superman pajamas with the cape and would like jump off my couch, hoping maybe just maybe, despite the explicit label on the pajamas saying that it (laughs) won't grant you the ability to fly. uh, I could fly. Um, But the idea that like, if given all the power in the world and given like the perfect body and the perfect like with no physical limitations, you would still do good is such an intoxicating fantasy. Yeah. That's what everyone hopes to be. And Superman is like just the ultimate like middle of the night wish of every just like scrawny, gross fucked up weak person yeah that's why i love that we're going back and doing this series because i feel like for me personally i'm like finding superman which is really cool um all right well i think that does it for part one of superman thank you so much for listening if you'd like to check us out on our patreon patreon.com forward slash whizbrew we put bonus episodes out every week and there's other different great little things that uh are coming out of that 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 you can get uh also um uh, if please write a review we've been going up on the charts and games and hobbies lately and that's been so great to see don't worry I don't look at it constantly or anything like that it doesn't dictate my happiness or anything like that but please. when the number goes up I'm a good person <laughs> when the number goes down my dad was right but please please if you haven't done so already please write a review and rate us on iTunes um, thank you so much for listening you can follow me at twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho for all the streaming Jake you can find me on twitter at best Jake Young All right. Take care, everybody.